This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads here on WGVU Radio. I remember way back when, outside of the election of a pope, it seemed like the only outlet for news on religion was about a page long in the back of Time magazine. Critics have charged that the mass media have done a disservice to the country by not reporting on a subject that means so much to so many in our society. But those days are well behind us. Virtually all of the national magazines, newspapers, wire services, and networks have increased their attention to the subjects of religion and spirituality. And with today's increasing amount of influence that religion is having on the political scene, it's not even an option to ignore it. As one who is at the helm of a faith-oriented organization, you can imagine that I'm quite a religion news junkie. And I'm proud to have Common Threads air on an NPR affiliate because it is my estimation that when it comes to this subject, NPR has always been just a little ahead of the curve. Case in point, their current religion correspondent is the renowned Barbara Bradley Haggerty. Now, when you put someone with her credentials in a spot like this, you're telling everyone that you mean business. A little bit about her, Ms. Haggerty has been the religion correspondent for NPR since January of 2003. She reports on the intersection of faith and politics, law, science, and culture. Before that, she was NPR's Justice Department correspondent and covered legal affairs and crime. Her stories range from the impeachment hearings of President Clinton to the Florida election to the DNA revolution. Barbara was the lead correspondent covering the investigation into the September 11th attacks. Her reporting was part of NPR's coverage that earned the network the 2001 Peabody and Overseas Press Club Awards. She's appeared on the PBS program's Washington Week in Review and the Lair News Hour. In her capacity as a religion correspondent, Barbara received the 2004 Religion News Writers Association Award for radio reporting. She attended uh, Yale Law School, and uh, she was with the Christian Science Monitor, World Monitor, and Monitor Radio, and was graduated magna cum laude from Williams College in 1981 with a degree in economics. So we are very proud to welcome to Common Threads Barbara Bradley Haggerty. Welcome. Well, thank you. I like all those adjectives you use, like renowned. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, I forgot. I forgot. There's one other line here. But of all the accolades and achievements that Ms. Bradley has on her resume, we can only assume that addressing the World Affairs Council here in Grand Rapids a few years back must be considered the high point of her career, or at least we'd like to think so. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I said, it's uh, great to uh, to have you here. We've been an admirer of yours for a long time. But I, I keep in mind that I still must put all of my personal feelings aside during this interview and reserve the right to interrogate you to the point of tears and expose your secrets. <laughs> I look forward to that. Uh, you know what they call Mike Wallace these days at CBS? No, what? <clears throat> Fred Stella Light. <laughs> So. People quake in their boots, <laughs> as am I. Oh, thank you. It's good to know that. Anyway, let's uh, let's uh, get into this. I have many questions uh, for you. Before we get into the area of religion, tell us a little bit about you, about uh, 
from the point of uh, graduating college with a degree in economics to ending up on national public radio. Barbara, how did that happen? Well, let's see. I was not all that interested in news reporting when I came out of college, but was lucky enough to get a, um, an internship at the Christian Science Monitor right after I graduated and fell in love. I mean, absolutely, Fred fell in love with journalism and um, found myself working, you know, weekends and nights and early mornings just so I could get a piece, um, I was about to say a piece on the air, but a piece in the paper. And um, at the end of that summer, they offered me a job, but unfortunately I had accepted a job with uh, Bain & Company, which was an economic consulting firm in, in Boston. And in that year at Bain, I learned the true depth of my abilities. <laughs> I was a terrible economist. And um, the whole year, I essentially cried myself to sleep because I wanted to be back at the monitor. I wanted to be doing journalism and sticking my nose into other people's business. And uh, it's just such a, a privilege to, to have this job, to be able to ask questions and then um, put out in a paper or on a broadcast what you think is the best um, kind of the best composition of the ideas and and so I did that for several years and um, worked for the paper for seven years and uh, was a went back to the monitor was a reporter and then they asked me to go to Asia uh, for their what then became an ill-fated uh, television program that aired on the Discovery Channel. It was a nightly newscast, and I was their Asia correspondent uh, at age 29 and got to travel around Asia for three years with a crew and had the time of my life. Uh, and then they ran out of money doing the television program, so I came back and worked for Monitor Radio for a year. And at that point, I had really grown interest in, in legal affairs and applied for a job at, excuse me, applied for a fellowship at Yale Law School. Every year um, at that time, they've discontinued this recently, but at, every year Yale would offer um, five journalists the opportunity to go through the first year of law school, and they would pay for you to go, and they'd pay tuition and all of that. And it was a real privilege because it, it helped reporters learn about the law so that they wouldn't be kind of frightened by the language of it when they went back to report on their papers or in the news um, in their news businesses. Now, now was this a, a specialized course for journalists? This did no, not... no, no, it wasn't. We just uh, became first-year law students. It was um, it was hard. Uh, there were a lot of. I've never been around so many smart people in my life, and we, you know, if it, it, we had to do everything that they did, we had to do the exams, we had to do the oral arguments, moot court, all of that stuff, and uh, really, really, really study. I, I can say I've never worked. If if one were looking around for a fellowship uh, to relax and have fun as a mid-career break, this is not the fellowship to do. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, so I basically did the first year of law school, which really gets you a long way into what you need to know uh, to report on the law. And, and, and then, you, were never, you were never tempted to go for the JD? No, I have, a, uh, I have a perfect job. I mean, when I covered the Justice Department, and even now doing what I do now, but, uh, you know, the choice was, do you, if you get a JD... You have to then toil away for years and years, perhaps working on the same case, you know, an IBM antitrust case or something, for years and years and years. If you're a journalist, you get to cherry-pick the really fun, interesting constitutional stories to do. And you do the story, and then you move on to the next interesting constitutional story. And so um, being a journalist with a little baby law degree, which is what I consider this, 
is really the best of all worlds. You get to have the variety, but then of of doing one story after another, but you also get to do meaty, meaty stories. So it's really the best of both worlds. Sure, I, I would imagine so. Now, when you before you went to Yale. Uh, you said that you were a correspondent for Monitor Radio? That's right. So you'd already made the leap from print to broadcast? Yes, I had, and it was really a fairly easy leap. I mean, the harder leap was from print to television, because there you have to to write to picture. And um, I found that, um, I mean, it was easy enough. You get used to it, but I found it, frankly, a little bit shallow, and I know that all our television viewers and television correspondents who might hear this will cringe at that, but... But um, radio is really much more like print than, than it is like television in many ways. Radio is a medium of ideas. And, and really you, can, you may have to structure a story a little bit differently when you do a radio as opposed to a print piece, but you can get all of the ideas in there. And so it, really the leap to radio was, was not much of a leap especially if you work for a place like the Christian Science Monitor, which is an an idea-driven paper anyway. And so going from the Monitor to NPR was very, I mean, very, very easy. Sure. What about learning how to, if you'll forgive the expression, perform, you know, standing or sitting in front of a microphone. Was that something where you you just did it, or did you have to pick up any special training? Did you learn from anyone, or did it just come natural? Well, actually, I mean, I'm embarrassed to say, but maybe I'm a little bit of a ham. It came a little bit, it came naturally. I mean, they did have a, when I was doing stand-ups, when I was just training to do monitor television, uh, they had a coach go out with me, and she basically said, you know, fine, just do that. And what I, what I did is I would speak to my mom. <laughs> <laughs> I have a great mom, and when I would do my stand-ups or um, t- when I read my scripts, I often think, okay, who's my audience here? Who do I want to understand this? And it's often my mom because she's both my harshest critic and my biggest fan. So um, it's easy to speak to her. It really wasn't very difficult. I mean, I guess, I guess the one thing that I learned is that I had to respect the ideas and the words that I was saying. And what that meant was to go slowly enough to give them meaning, you know, not just to rush through them, but to think, well, with each sentence, what, is, what does that actually mean? What am I saying here? And um, I, I, I guess if that's performance, um, I guess then I, it was pretty easy to perform. And then you went from monitor, uh, from Christian Science Monitor to NPR, uh, correct? Yes. Well, actually, there was a slight interlude. Um, and uh, after I went to, when I was at Yale Law School, um, I decided that I would never go back to the news business. <laughs> there again, now here I am. Um, what I decided is that, you know, I really wanted to start writing books and things like that. And when I was in Asia, I... Um, I got interested in the story of Aung San Suu Kyi, the Nobel Peace Prize winner in Burma, and was there actually during the first election they had in 26 years. Um, right after the election, the junta threw everyone who won from the democracy movement into jail. They threw her, Aung San Suu Kyi, who was the head of the democracy movement, into, into house arrest. And um, I thought this was a really amazing story. So I actually... Um, got um, wrote a proposal to do a book on it and a book on her and uh, wrote uh, got an agent and actually got a um, a publisher to 
to do uh, to publish the book, the one thing I learned at Yale Law School that was actually practical <laughs> was that if you're not sure you can complete a contract, don't sign it. And so I held off signing the contract because there were a lot of things going on in Burma that might have made it difficult for me to complete the book. Namely, it w- there was a military junta in charge. They wouldn't give me a visa to go report the story, and she was under house arrest. So I began to worry that I would not be able to do this book. And I ended up... Um, I ended up freelancing and working on the book for a year, which is a kind of nerve-wracking way to make a living, um, for a year while I tried to figure out whether I was ever going to get into Burma and do the book. Finally, um, Aung San Suu Kyi was let out of house arrest. I did a, went over there, did a story for Vogue magazine, of all places, because she's a very beautiful woman. And um, after that, they clamped down again, and I realized that the book would be impossible to do. Right at that time... NPR called me up out of the blue and asked if I could do, um, if I could help them out editing on the foreign desk on a week-to-week basis. And at that point, I had just decided, you know, I just don't think I'm going to be able to do this book. I can't get into Burma. Uh, and so I said, sure, you know, I can edit for, on a week-to-week basis. And that's how I ended up coming to NPR in, in December of 1995 on a week-to-week contract. <laughs> and uh, I've been here ever since. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU Radio. I'm Fred Stella, and my guest today is Barbara Bradley Haggerty, National Public Radio religion correspondent. And so how long was it, uh, Barbara, before uh, they put you in the Justice Department? Well, what happened is I, I, looked, I, I edited for about six months, and then I looked, looked into a wonderful story. I saw a story that I wanted to do, asked him if I could have a couple of days off to do it. And it was the story of a woman from um, Togo who didn't want to be sent back to, to Togo because of um, she'd be subjected to female genital mutilation. And I ended up doing this story, and it actually... Um, uh, fortunately for me, it was actually a pretty big hit. And the next thing I knew, I was reporting on the Washington desk. I did a general assignment reporting for about a year and a half, but my interest was always the law. And so every story I did, I tried to make an angle, um, make the law an angle, and ended up developing the um, immigration beat into essentially a, a legal immigration beat. And uh, at some point, about a year and a half into my into my reporting career at NPR, our wonderful justice correspondent, uh, Chitra Raghavan, ended up going to U.S. News and World Report. And so they put me into the Justice Department. This was my first day on the beat was the day that Ken Starr testified on the Hill about the Starr Report involving, you know, President Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. So that was my first day on the beat, and it started at 7 (laughs) a.m. and went till about 1 a.m. doing things for Morning Edition, Talk of the Nation, News Spots, and then three pieces for All Things Considered. So it was really a baptism by fire. Yeah, nothing like being thrown off the dock. (laughs) (laughs) That's how it felt. And uh, you did that for how many years? I did justice for about four and a half years. Okay. And, and it, was, it was really an eventful time. Um, it was a time when, uh, I mean, my, my time there spanned the impeachment um, of President Clinton or the impeachment hearings of President Clinton. I covered, you know, espionage cases like Robert Hansen and Wen Ho Lee. I covered... Um, the 2000 elections, uh, I mean, these are just some of the highlights, and then the 9-11 attacks. At that point, we only had one person who covered the FBI, Justice Department, immigration, um, kind of national security issues, and that was me. 
And so now we have about four people covering those issues. Um, but it was a very, very, very busy time right after 9-11. And um, I have to say that, and this is just a little bit of a um, an aside here, but after 9-11, I think, is when people really felt proud to be at public radio. Um, we were on the we were on the air all the time, and we tended not to run with, you know, the unconfirmed reports. We tended to try to be really, really careful and tell people what they needed to know. And we felt as if this was a public service. This is what it was all about: is being being on public radio to give people everything they needed to know, to do it 24 hours a day, to do it thoughtfully and not in a panicked way. And it was really a privilege, I mean, really a privilege to be at NPR during that time. And I think everyone felt that way. Um, so so I, I, as exhausting as it was, it was really something I wouldn't have traded for, for anything in the world. No, I think many of us do remember the wonderful coverage that you all did provide and uh, as, as unsensationalized as possible. That's that's right. I mean, we had to think. I remember, you know, when there would be these unconfirmed reports that people were, um, uh, you know, shutting down New York, uh, one of the airports in New York City, and that there were terrorists in there and all of this stuff. And, you know, people were running with this. And it just isn't fair. It isn't fair to the population, to the people who are listening to us, to just run with unconfirmed reports. And, um, you know, sometimes I, I would have to call up the FBI and say, and when they would do no comment, you know, they'd say, well, no comment on these unconfirmed reports. I'd say, you know, in 10 minutes, I am going on the air, and we have 13 million listeners, and I don't know what to tell them. And you have to tell me what I can safely say to them. And, and you know, 13 million listeners. And um, then they would back down, and they'd say, okay, this is what we know, and this is what, and this is what we don't know, and I would stay away from this, and I would go with that. And um, and that was how they realized that NPR was, I'm not just trying to toot our own horn, but we were probably the largest outlet for for accurate information to get out there. And and they also knew that we didn't want to panic people. We wanted to give them r- the right information. So it was, um, it was a challenge. It was a challenge, um, but it was a good one. And so let's talk about the leap from Justice Department and all of the other interesting things that you've done so far at NPR. The transition from that to religion. How did that happen? I have to uh, admit that when I first heard, uh, and now to our religion correspondent, Barbara Bradley Haggerty, I was taken aback. What? Barbara (laughs) and religion. Interesting. How, How did that happen? Well... I mean, I asked for it. Um, uh, I mean, a little bit of a personal aside. I got I got married at the ripe old age of 43 in um, September of 2002, and the hours I was working they were really rather long hours as the Justice Department correspondent. And so I I had actually said to them, I would love to do something that's a little bit less news driven and and more idea driven. And um, I had mentioned I really thought the religion beat was interesting. I think it's, uh, in a second I'll tell you why I think it's interesting, but um, they were very, very gracious to me. And when Duncan Moon, who was my predecessor in this beat, decided to move to Alaska, they offered it to me. And I was, I was delighted. The reason I think it's such a fabulous beat is you can get, especially with this administration, you can really get to the cultural trends. I mean, this administration, George Bush, with his his faith, 
has made this a very hot topic. He's done the faith-based initiative, which brings up which really kind of pushes the envelope when it comes to legal issues and the wall between church and state, the wall of separation between church and state. Um, It's brought up, I think, um, a culture war that we're seeing politically, and we saw that in the 2004 elections. Um, It brings up kind of cultural, so it's it's a political story, it's a legal story, and it's also kind of a cultural story that's going on. And um, I just felt that this would be a way to get at a lot of very relevant issues in an original way. So I was, um, what I didn't realize is that I was really kind of jumping from whatever the phrase is, from the, from the pot into the fire or whatever. Um, it, this is a very controversial beat, it's turned out. Um, but I didn't know that at the time. I just thought it would be an interesting beat. Did any of your peers uh, react similarly to myself? Did anybody think that this might be some sort of demotion you know, going from Justice Department to religion, or were they savvy enough to realize that somebody could really shine in this spotlight? Oh, I think I don't think anyone re- thought of it as a demotion. I think um, they they all knew that I had asked for it. Um, I'd actually applied for it before, and everyone knew I'd pl- applied for it in 2000, and um, and didn't get it um, because basically they needed me doing Justice Department. Um, and they knew that I'd, uh, four and a half years is a long time to put in the kind of hours I'd put in. So people knew that I'd applied for it. And they, were, they, they thought it was, I mean, a lot of people think it's the best beat at NPR right now. Um, I'm not sure if they thought so then. But my view was, um, you know, you can take a beat, you can take anything and make it something really, really interesting. And, um, and so that's just what I set out to do. So, I, I mean, actually no one was surprised and no one that I talked to, maybe people didn't tell me about it, but no one I talked to thought it was a demotion. They thought it was really, it was going to be a lot of fun. And uh, can I assume, when I said, uh, when I opened up the show, I mentioned that putting you in this spot was NPR's way of saying that we believe that this is a very important beat. I mean, without without... You know, losing that wonderful sense of humility that you have, can we can we agree that uh, to put somebody with your experience, your credentials in this is in fact uh, a way of communicating how important NPR feels about religion in society? Well, I, uh, um, <laughs> you have to put me on the spot. I think NPR, let me just say this, I think NPR does realize it's very, very important. But I think they realized that before me, um, when they started the beat, uh, Lynn Neary took, took the beat, gosh, back in the mid-'90s. And one reason they began, the, they opened up this, this whole slot was because they realized that NPR has millions and millions of listeners. It turns out about 29% of their listenership consider themselves conservatives, and many of them consider themselves religious conservatives. And what they realized is that um, there are a lot of people out there who are listening to NPR um, who put... Um, who were conservatives as well as liberals, who felt that um, really looked at the world through the prism of their faith. And, and I think that's true of many people where, where, wherever you are on the political spectrum. I think that's very, very true. They, they got a wake-up call, really, about that in the mid-1990s um, when they ran a commentary in which uh, Andre Cadescu said that um, he wished all these dumb Christians would be raptured so that we could get rid of them. And uh, NPR proceeded to get about 40,000 emails, uh, email and, and letters about that. Um, and it was a wake-up call to, to NPR saying, 
gosh, you know what? Religion is really, really important to a lot of people, really a lot of people, and we need to pay attention. So this was a, a kind of a psychological shift or a strategic shift that occurred way before me, uh, back in the mid-'90s. Um, I think... Um, Excuse me, back then, excuse me, Barbara, back then, didn't you have Cal Thomas on as a commentator as well? We did, we did, and, you know, we we mix up our commentators. We, um, I think at some point they felt that Cal Thomas was saying the same thing over and over again, and so they found other conservative commentators. I'm not really in on that end of things. Um, That is really a decision by the shows, All Things Considered and Morning Edition. But what they do try to do is mix up their commentators and have an equal number of conservative and liberal commentators and religious people and not religious people. And, um, you know, I mean, one of the things that's happened is NPR has been accused now of of getting conservative because we do have conservative commentators on. Um, I don't think that's, uh, I don't actually think that that's a fair charge. I think we're, we try to play it down the middle, um, which bothers a lot of people also. But, um, but, you know, I think NPR does, does have a real, a real sensitivity now to the religious beliefs of people and that we need to pay attention to these and that only became that that realization only became sharper in the 2000 and 2004 election so um whether whether they consider religion you know whether them putting me in this position is a stamp of approval or not i don't know but um but i hope that i've i hope that i've continued to to raise the profile of the beat because i I think it deserves to be in a high-profile position. Sure. Barbara, we're coming down to the wire on uh, this edition of Common Threads, and there's so much more I want to ask you, including uh, questions about your wonderful uh, recent series on the culture wars. So I'm hoping to be able to do that with you next week. That's perfect. Very good. Barbara Bradley Haggerty has been our guest today here on Common Threads. My name is Fred Stella. And we hope that you will join us again next week right here on WGVU Radio. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, president of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Chances are, if you're listening to this program right now, you have a fair to great interest in things religious or spiritual. Either that or you're just in too comfortable of a position to get up and change the radio station. 
But if you are the former as opposed to the latter, I'm sure you also appreciate the wonderful uh, religion coverage that you'll hear on National Public Radio and here on WGVU, as we are NPR affiliates. And today we are continuing our conversation with the religion correspondent of NPR, Barbara Bradley Haggerty. Barbara has been the uh, religion correspondent for NPR since January of 2003. She reports on the intersection of faith and politics, law, science, and culture. Before that, she was NPR's Justice Department correspondent and covered legal affairs and crime. Her stories ranged from the impeachment hearings of President Clinton to the Florida election to the DNA revolution. Barbara was the lead correspondent covering the investigation into the September 11 attacks. Her reporting was part of NPR's coverage that earned the network the 2001 Peabody and Overseas Press Club Awards. She's appeared on the PBS programs, Washington Week in Review, and the Lair News Hour. In her capacity as religion correspondent, Barbara received the 2004 Religion News Writers Association Award for Radio Reporting. She's worked for the Christian Science Monitor, World Monitor, and Monitor Radio, and was graduated magna cum laude from Williams College in 1981 with a degree in economics. Barbara, thank you so much for joining us again here on Common Threads. Oh, it's great fun. I'll uh, look forward to that. Um, we talked a lot about your uh, your background, how you ended up at NPR, and then how you ended up as religion correspondent. Uh, and I wanted to ask you, um, did you have any preconceived notions of the religious scene here in the United States or the people who make up that scene that have been dashed or have been affirmed? Were there any surprises when you first took the beat? The answer kind of is yes and no. Um, Let me tell you the no part first. Um, Back in 1995, I did a magazine piece for the Los Angeles Times Sunday Magazine. And it was about um, why churches grow. And I went out to L.A. and I was—I actually interviewed Rick Warren, who now uh, you probably have heard of him. He has Saddleback Church. Uh, he wrote *The Purpose Driven Life*, which has sold 20 million copies. Sure. Back then, sure. he was—he was not quite the mega church. I mean, he still had a mega church, and he had an idea about how how to grow churches. But um, he wasn't quite the household name that he is now. I, I talked to him, and I, ta- I profiled a couple of other churches that grew quickly. Um, and what I realized is that there was a, an entire subculture that I had previously been unaware of, and that was this kind of subculture of evangelicalism, uh, the, uh, that, that these large conservative churches were growing and growing and growing and bringing in more and more people who were essentially baby boomers, uh, people who wanted to find a place to have their kids go to Sunday school and where they could learn morals and values and all that stuff, learn about the Bible, whatever. Um, So what I I found is there was this trend of of people essentially my age going back to church, and I had been clueless about this until I did this story. Well, then it's like, you know, buying a car when you want to buy a Volvo. You see Volvos everywhere. Suddenly I began to see evangelicals (laughs) everywhere. And so when I came into this beat for National Public Radio, I knew that there was a subculture. What I, but I had never really studied it before. And um, I guess the big surprise for me was that this subculture has gotten a lot more sophisticated than it used to be. And um, I think that was the, the stereotype that I, I kind of sh- shrugged off 
in the course of doing um, my reporting in this beat. Uh, how well organized they were, how they were really beginning to um, penetrate the courts, uh, just things like that. And, and so that was, so when I say yes and no, I was aware of the subculture about evangelicals um, before, and yet I was unaware of, of the workings of it. And uh, we wanted to talk about this uh, most recent series. Was it a five-part series? I... Yes, it was. It was a five-part series. On, on the culture wars. Yes. The, the interesting thing, that you are using the term culture wars. I, I know that is a term that goes back several years. Yes. Then, after this election, a lot of the pundits were saying, what culture wars? We don't live in a, in red and blue states. We live in a purple country. And I've seen maps where they show how, you know, the, the reds and blues live uh, right next to each other in different counties and how this, there basically, there's no real polarization, that that's media hype or it's something that people on the far left or on the far right want to convince us that, that there is this polarization. I never bought that. I really believe that there is, in fact, a cultural war going on in this country, and I think that your series affirms that. Yeah, you know, I've never bought it either, Fred. Um, I really... No, I think it's true that the middle, the large middle, um, or the middle is very large, but I also think it's true that the extremes on the right and the left do drive the debate, and they are very sophisticated, and... Uh, they are able to fight it, you know, in a hand-to-hand combat. I mean, I do believe that we are seeing a culture war. Now, a culture war. Now, you know, this notion of the red state, uh, red people and blue people living right next to each other. In fact, that's a little bit wrong. Um, I don't know if you saw the very interesting map that I believe it was USA Today did. I'm not sure. Maybe it was in New York Times. It looked at um, where the red state. Uh, folks lived and where the blue state folks lived. And they did it kind of through horizontal bar charts. And what you would find is that the vast majority of the country was all blue. It was kind of this flat, uh, excuse me, all red. It was this flat red land, except the large cities. And large cities have, it was like skyscrapers of of, uh, blue state people, Democrats. And so what you find is that Yes, the states may be purple, but there is a sharp divide from one county to another, depending on, you know, whether you live in the city or whether you live in the suburbs or the exurbs. And and I think what what is going on here is there really is a values war. You know, Fred, the other thing I didn't buy is, uh, remember how everyone poo-pooed the the fact that 23% of people said, coming out of the exit, uh, coming out of the polls said that they... Um, they voted on values. Yes. And immediately what you saw was a pushback and people saying, well, you know, values was too vague a term. And what they really meant was, you know, values when it comes to social justice or the war or whatever, and it was all mixed up together. Well, I never bought that because something like two-thirds of the people who said they voted for values voted for Bush. And what that tell you, tells you is that those people who voted for values, two-thirds of them were voting for conservative social values. There really is a values divide. Yeah, they've, they've pretty much, uh, the conservatives have branded the word values. Right. So, so I think that somebody who, for whom, uh, say, the environment uh, is a value or, or uh, you know, fair wages is a value, they'd use a different word. They do. They do. And, and frankly... Um, 
um, liberals or Democrats or whatever we want to call them, progressives, really need, need to find a language that is more appealing. Um, I mean, if the conservatives have been brilliant about taking over this notion of values or religion. Um, they've co-opted it. And, um, and they've done it through sophistication, but I'll tell you really why, why it's worked so well. It's the issues that they're talking about are issues that hit close to home. These are issues of, you know, of um, gay marriage or issues of um, abortion or what's being taught in schools about homosexuality. These are like what, what parents would consider to be scary issues. Um, and these are issues that are kind of visceral. People have a visceral reaction to them. Um, the issues that the liberals pick are not quite so visceral. There are things like, um, as you said, the environment or how prisoners are treated in Guantanamo Bay, things that don't hit quite as close to home, things that people in Kansas don't talk about over the dinner table. Um, and so I think the Democrats have to figure out how do they make these issues visceral for people. And I don't think they've quite done it yet. It's interesting that only a few have uh, picked up on uh, uh, trying to connect, uh, say, uh, fair wages, fair labor practices with spirituality and religion. Very few have done that, and they haven't been able to sell that to the uh, to the American public uh, anyway. Because I, I, my guess is that the people who are very focused on conservative values still are very happy to shop at Walmart. Have have no problem uh, with any of those so-called justice issues. Right. Do you think I'm right on that? I do think I do think you're right on that. I think um, those are still kind of ephemeral issues for the vast majority of of Americans who are just worrying about you know going to work every day and putting their kids through school and teaching them the kind of values that they want their kids to have to go into the next generation. Issues like social justice, you know, just it's almost like an elitist problem for people. You know what I mean? It's an elitist value. And I think a lot of people just can't get too worked up about it when they're just struggling to, to you know, get, get their paycheck and, and raise their kids. Sure. What uh, things really stand out, uh, elements that you've learned uh, by creating this series on the culture wars? Well, let, first, let me just tell you briefly how I ended up doing this, um, this series. Basically, the, the um, origin of the series came just a few days after the election, when basically the media was very surprised that George Bush was reelected. And they came to me, the editors came to me and said, okay, Barb, here's your assignment. Figure out what happened and explain it. And that... Um, it took a while to do that because there was a lot of other stuff going on. I mean, the Pope died, and there was the Shivo case, and there was, you know, there's a lot of news in my beat as well. So um, as I was trying to figure out what to do in the series, my mandate was to just explain um, how this fairly unknown subculture, at least to the media elites, how, how it... Um, how the, these people kind of rose up and, ele and elected George Bush. What happened there? The most interesting... One of the most interesting insights, and they, I mean, it was so much fun doing this series. Uh, one of the most interesting insights I had was that there is this kind of 
nostalgia, this longing for a time that was simpler. And how that is translated among many people, not just religious conservatives, but you hear more from religious conservatives, is we want to go back to the days of the Founding Fathers. Now, what did the days of the Founding Fathers look like? Well, it was a, um, it was a time when people spoke openly about God. It was a time when most of the Founding Fathers were Protestants um, or deists but they, they still spoke of God when the wall of separation between church and state did not seem quite so high. Um, it, was, it was a time when religion and values seemed to be more of the common currency of language. And, um, and so what you've seen is this kind of Christian heritage movement rise up, where people are saying, we want to go back to those times when Christianity was, um, was one of the kind of bedrocks of, of the American experiment. We want to go back to a time when the wall wasn't so high between church and state. Who said that wall was even, it may, isn't that wall just kind of a fiction of the Supreme Court? Um, anyway, from the 1940s, wasn't, weren't a few extra um, levels, uh, floors of that wall put up by the Supreme Court in the 1940s, even if Thomas Jefferson came up with the term of the wall of separation between church and state. The point is that they are, you see this longing for going back to the way things are. And the way it plays out is fights like over the Ten Commandments or fights over school prayer, issues that many people thought were settled issues in the courts are now kind of rising from the dead. And that is, that is what, I really, what I came away with, how much there is a longing out there for the way things used to be. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU Radio. I'm Fred Stella, and our guest today is Barbara Bradley Haggerty. And she is the religion correspondent for National Public Radio. And at the moment, we're talking about her recently run series on the culture wars on NPR. And by the way, uh, I highly recommend it. And you can still hear that series by going to www.npr.org and uh, just, well, typing in your name, really, in <laughs> right. the search engine. That'll, that'll uh, call them all up. Uh, you know, what's interesting, too, is one of the episodes that you did was on the Christian character of the nation and exactly what you're talking about. Uh, what did the Founding Fathers uh, intend uh, in creating this republic? Right. Where, where was religion supposed to fit? Right. It can drive you batty. Can it can. It? it can, because you know what? The, um, the Founding Fathers could have created a Christian nation if they wanted. Um, but, I'm going to they could have created a Christian nation, but they deliberately decided not to. And, and so when, when there is this argument that we are a Christian nation, when that comes, you know, when people raise that argument, it's really not, it, we know the answer. The answer is we're not a Christian nation. And if there's ever any evidence of that, we can just look at the demographics um, today. I mean, Protestants are about to slip, if they haven't already slipped into, the minority status. Um, I think we are now less than 50% Protestants in this country. And so what, what that tells you is that we're becoming increasingly pluralistic, and somehow the Founding Fathers managed to kind of see far enough ahead and realize that this really could not be a Christian nation because it could become a theocracy. Remember, they had had their taste of what, uh, what a theocracy felt like. They had, they had felt persecuted in, uh, in other countries. And so um, they were very clear on this issue. That, 
but what, but what is happening is there is a sense that the culture has gotten out of control, and we're such a crude culture now. I mean, people, that's what you hear both on the left and the right. Um, and so there is kind of a sense that if we can't agree on the basic things, if we can't agree that marriage is between a man and a woman, if we can't agree on what, when life begins or when life ends, then there is a sense of, well, let's go back to the time when we could agree on certain fun foundational issues. And that brings us back to the founding days of the Republic, and, and that's where you get this longing. But even though officially I, I agree with you that uh, the founding fathers uh, uh, could have gone farther than they did and actually called it a, a, a Christian nation, and I know in one letter that Jefferson wrote, he, he basically said, we're not because we want to make this country open to... It's interesting, he said, Hindus and Mohammedans, mm -hmm. which, how did he know they were going to come here? That's right. <laughs> you know, I mean, if he said Jews, okay, fine, we already had a few. Yeah. <laughs> but, how, how did he, he know that, uh, you know, IT support was going to be so strong in this country that we had to import <laughs> uh, Indians over here or whatnot? Um, but when you go to the NPR website uh, uh, on your series, you have that one, that one section where you have the various quotations from not only the founding fathers, but people of that era and perhaps right. a little, a little uh, closer to our time. Right. And you have the quotes, and if you look at the quotes that, uh, say, James Dobson would use right. to pr prove his point, then you look at the quotes that... Uh, 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 Lynn, Reverend Lynn from right. the Americans United for the Separation of Church and State, you look at their quotes, you think, my God, are these people from two different countries? I know. <laughs> it's, it's, it's absolutely true. And, you know, the thing, the thing I think we need to remember is that um, the Founding Fathers, by the, their use of, um, of religious terms, of, you know, of, of God and, and things like that, um, they, they sound evangelical to our modern ears, because mainly Christian conservatives are the ones who use God as a rhetor rhetorical tool. And I don't mean to sound that, make that sound crass, but it is, you know, the James Dobsons of the world who tend to invoke God or Jesus more than, than other folks. But the Founding Fathers, while to our modern ears might sound evangelical, they really weren't. I mean, they were kind of smack in the middle of, of Barry Lynn and James Dobson. They were, many of them, theists who believed in, in principles uh, of character, and they believed in providence. And Barry Lynn is, after all, um, a reverend, um, so I imagine he would say that he believes in providence as well. But they were neither liberal nor conservative by today's standards. They were pretty much in the middle. And so, you know, both of them can, can take the words of the Founding Fathers and use them to, to good effect, um, to make their point. Uh, but I think the Founding Fathers represented neither uh, neither side, neither the Lynn side nor the James Dobson side. They were also uh, quite influenced by the Enlightenment. Right. Correct. And, and uh, um, fundamentalists are certainly anti-Enlightenment. Yeah. Would you agree? Um, the series, what have the, the reviews been on that? Um, well, you know, you get... I got more nice mail than I actually expected. Generally, the only people who write in are um, people who hate what you did. And with religion, believe me, you get a lot of that. Um, you get it from the left and the right. Um, I'll tell you the most kind of interesting thread that I've seen. Uh, and this is, this is probably the most common thread. Is a palpable, oh my goodness, from, from folks 
on the more liberal side of the spectrum. Because I had, I had two so- stories in there about um, the rise of Christian law schools, conservative Christian law schools, and also the rise of conservative Christian public interest groups. And, um, and what I was showing was namely that, that conservatives realized that they could control the White House and control Congress but still lose the culture wars because the culture wars are being won or lost in the courts generally the federal courts. And so what's happened is conservative Christians have started to create their own cottage industry. They're, they're having their own law schools and their own um, public interest law firms to fight the culture wars issues in the courts now. And this is a relatively new development, and they've been actually rather successful. And I think the, the interesting thread of uh, the email that we received was an, oh, my goodness, oh, this is scary. And uh, this is scary that the Christian conservatives have gotten so sophisticated about the courts. Well, frankly, they're just taking a page out of the book written by the ACLU. The ACLU was incredibly smart about how they would uh, pursue these, their ideas and their values in the courts. And now the conservatives are just catching up. But I think it's been a wake-up call to people to, to f- figure out that, in fact, they are, the Christian conservatives are catching up. Uh, what is your take on the the possibility that the Democratic Party is going to pull back a little bit on on uh, things like abortion or or some of the other social issues? Is is that being seriously discussed uh, in the rank and file? You know, I I think it is. Uh, I mean, I've I haven't done this story yet, and it's probably going to be one of my next stories. Um, but you hear murmurings from folks like, you know, Hillary Clinton um, of trying to find a middle road on, um, on the abortion issue. And let me tell you, this, it would be strategically so smart for them to do, because um, one of the stories I did was about the evangelical Protestant and conservative Catholic alliance that has grown up basically beginning with Roe v. Wade in 1973. If Democrats, and what's happened is that there are a lot of conservative Catholics out there who have essentially the Democratic Party's values on issues like war, on issues like social justice, on poverty, things like that. But because of the abortion issue, they vote Republican. And we we saw that in this election. Bush got something like 51% of white Catholics this election, even though John Kerry was a Catholic. So if the Democrats can somehow figure out something to do, uh, a middle road on abortion, they could pull back all of those Catholics into the Democratic Party who are there naturally anyway. I really do believe that this is, they see this as a huge issue for them and they need to do something about it. That's interesting because when, when one thinks of what a middle road for that particular issue, uh, at least when I think of it, it's, uh, it's quite a quandary because for most people that I speak to, it hinges on, do you support <laughs> R.V. Wade or don't you? Yeah. And either it's going to go down in the courts or it's going to remain the law of the land. And if you budge, you know, in either direction, uh, uh, just a few degrees, you're, you're, you're redundant, you're meaningless, because it, it's either it's legal or it ain't. Right. It, it, have you have you uh, spoken to anybody that has been able to find this this uh, mythical, right? This, <laughs> no, seemingly mythical middle yes, ground? Yes, yes. And you know, I haven't done the reporting on it yet, but my instinct is that there are certain issues where Democrats might be able to um, give a little bit. Issues like late late term abortions. Now, you know, the trouble with that with that law for Democrats was that um, it had such a huge loophole that um, that 
they really couldn't support it. I mean, essentially, it didn't it didn't allow for women who were in danger of their lives or whatever to get late-term abortions, and so the Democrats couldn't support it. But if they had crafted a, a law that, for example, would prohibit late-term abortions, which is a fairly kind of gruesome practice, and I think a lot of people feel that, um, you know, where, where there are exceptions, like for the safety of the mother or something like that, I think Democrats could come along and be behind something like that and say, look, we are against certain types of abortion, but um, um, and when they're when they're particularly gruesome, but um, we're not. But we're also for kind of the woman's right to choose, say, in the first trimester or whatever. I mean, this is so hard. I, I am I am talking off the top of my head, mainly just having casual conversations with people. I haven't done the hard reporting on it, but it's a hard issue for Democrats. It really it really is. But you see them trying to somehow edge closer to the line. Sure. Now, uh, I am not going to ask you to reveal your spiritual slash religious affiliation, if any. But I'm curious if in your reporting, especially uh, this last series, uh, did you get queries in that direction from the, the people that you dealt with? Um, oh, from the people I dealt with. You mean in the in the response, or the people that I was actually interviewing? In the the people you were interviewing. Um, I get a lot. I get that almost every story. They want to know where I'm coming from, especially the conservatives, because um, they frankly don't really trust NPR. They think of it. They, I don't think they've listened to it recently. They think of it as this kind of liberal monolith. Um, and so they always ask me what my what my religious journey is like and what kind of believer I am. And I never tell them, um, uh, because, you know, I can't. Um, And what I do is I just just say, look, I I tell them if they're really, really concerned about it, I send them some of my stories, transcripts of my stories, and I I say, you decide whether you think I'm a fair reporter or not. And, um, I mean, if anything, I've gotten more criticism from liberals and conservatives, because I truly believe that, I mean, this is my opinion, but I feel that Sometimes over the past few years, the news media has done a disservice to to um, conservatives um, be, by not really allowing the best arguments to be um, articulated by conservatives. It's like for many years, I think that there was a sense that um, we'll give the smart liberal ideas and the kind of dumb conservative sound bites, and then um, and you set conservatives up as a straw man and let them be knocked down. I've really gone out of my way to essentially let the best, most robust ideas from each side, the liberals and conservatives, be articulated, let them get into the ring and duke it out, and let the listener decide which is the smartest idea. But I'm not going to rig the game, so to speak. I'm not going to rig the fight by um, uh, making conservatives look dumb and liberals look smart. And so I think that's been a little bit... uh, um, I'm not saying that's been a a shift at NPR, but I think that is not always typical in the national news media to do that. And so, if anything, I've gotten criticized um, from the left for being too friendly to the right. Well, Barbara, we're out of time, and I want to thank you so much for uh, being with us and sharing uh, so much. Oh, it's been great fun. And we look forward to uh, your series in the future. (laughs) Great. Thanks a lot, Fred. Sure thing. My name is Fred Stella. You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU Radio. I want to thank my guest, Barbara Bradley Haggerty, religion correspondent from NPR, for being our guest uh, this week and last. Please join us again next week here on WGVU. 
Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. Common Threads.